Please be seated. Good evening to you. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tonight, our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, Sunday nights you really, you always need a Bible, but Sunday nights really need a Bible. And uh, there are men coming up the aisles right now, just wave and they'll get a Bible into your hands. That way you can follow along and not only in listening, but also in reading with your own eyes. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is trying to find um, meaning and purpose in life under the sun, under the S-U-N, independent of God. He wants to find meaning and purpose in life in the context of the creation. Forget about the creator. And he's a man of almost limitless wealth and resources. And so God uh, has supplied that to him in order for him to make this search. It isn't God that God wanted him to do this necessarily, but God works it all together for good. So he has resources that most of us will never have to try and find meaning and purpose in this life and all manner of things. And so he takes this journey on behalf of all of us. His conclusion everywhere he turns is that life is empty and frustrating apart from God. And uh, that's, that's his, uh, the lesson he learns as he turns to the left, as he turns to the right, tries to find meaning and purpose in everything but God in the world as we kind of make our way through uh, the book. And so let's continue our search with him. We want to remember that he has already searched a few places in the first couple of chapters and came to the conclusion that man is comparatively insignificant and pointless in the grand scheme of creation and the cycles of creation. He talked about that in chapter 1. He spoke about the vanity of human wisdom. It only increases grief and sorrow. If we're going to take God out of the equation, then the more you know, the more that it breaks your heart and the more pain and grief you have in life. Also in chapter 2, He got into the vanity of making pleasure and partying the master passion of my life. He he did it for a while and he thought, what does this accomplish? (laughs) Some of you recognize that as a part of your search earlier in life. Then he tried to find meaning and purpose in amassing possessions in money. And uh, finally, at the end of chapter 2, he was living under the sun he concluded, provides no answer to the problem of death. And death really troubles Solomon in this search. He'll return to it over and over again, that there is, I can't find any answer for death but in God. And then we come now to uh, chapter 3 here. And so just close your eyes. I just want to go ahead and and I'm going to sing this first part of chapter 3. To everything turn, 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 there is a season. My apologies to Pete Seeger, yes, thank you. My apologies to Pete Seeger and the birds, most of all to the Lord related to this. And so... Solomon, the point that he's making here in this passage is they made it into a song and however you wanted to interpret it, I became familiar with it through the birds, putting it to popular music. And, um, but, you know, whether so often people listen to that and then they 
give the meaning to this, that this is some kind of a perky thing about life and all. Actually, it's not. What Solomon is talking about is that life under the sun, independent of God, at this point in his search, now he just dips right down into fatalism and the idea that all of the events of life are predetermined. We don't have any choice in, uh, in, in anything. So all of life is just inevitable. It's all been, uh, uh, the role has been given to us. Nothing can change. It's all inescapable. So everything is predetermined. And all of us are dealt this particular hand in life. And we've got, got to deal with that hand or we've got to ride out the ride that uh, has been given to us. And so you do just the best that you can and you roll with the punches. And so he writes here, to every uh, thing there is a season, uh, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. And then now he begins to speak about life between uh, our birth and our death, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. And so he begins again with life and death, a description of all of life uh, between one's birth and one's death. And he does all of these couplets, 13 different couplets that he lists there. They're opposites. Um, of things that happen in their time. And the idea is that each of these things cancel one another out. And so the net result is zero. So no matter what we do, these events ultimately become the masters of our lives. They are inescapable and that everything just wipes one thing out or, or the other. And so uh, Solomon, he communicates uh, all of this and communicates in, in verse 1 that all of these activities, the dis constructive activities, the destructive uh, activities, they all happen in their times. They're divinely ordained, and we're just in the middle of some big master plan that, that we uh, can't change in any way. Then in verse 9, he uh, pulls out of his fatalism for a moment and uh, he allows his mind to turn to God and the truth that God is in charge of time and eternity. Notice what he says. What profit has a worker from that in which he labors? I've seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. Uh, talking about these verses that we've just read. He, and then he speaks of God. He has made everything beautiful in its time also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. And so he asks himself in verse 9, what profit has the worker uh, from that in which he labors? And the answer he gives us in verse 10 is when he gives himself to his God-given task, God's call upon his life. 
and that God is able to overwhelm all of these things that are listed in verses 1 through 8 and make something beautiful out of them in his time. In other words, if you remove God from life, then all of these things are just impersonal experiences. But uh, when we process them with the Lord and the light of the Lord, that God is in charge of, uh, of circumstances, it gives a nobility, it gives a purpose and a meaning to life that we wouldn't otherwise have. It's interesting that he speaks in verse 11 that uh, God has put eternity in our hearts and uh, that we will never be able to find ultimate satisfaction in exploring uh, the purely physical world uh, and physical realm because God has put eternity in our hearts. We've been made for a relationship with God. We have been made to live in the context of eternity. And if that's not happening, then all it is is just fatalism. There's no hope. There's no meaning or purpose to our lives. But God is able, because he's present in our lives, to take all of these contrasts that are listed in verses 1 through 8 and make them meaningful in our life. And it's interesting, here he is, he's trying the best he can to um, figure out life or discover life and meaning and purpose in life independent of God. But we see continually through the book, he keeps coming back to God. He can't help it. It's got to be very, very frustrating to be an atheist or an agnostic because God's everywhere. Um, in the design, in the creation, in the everything, in any wisdom that you find in the world. He is the author of that. And so try as he might to move away from God, he is just uh, uh, unable to resist the pull to bring God into the conversation. And so he talks about the fact that, yes, it is fatalism, but I know that life is not fatalism, even though it's made up of all that's listed in verses 1 through 8, when it's lived in the context of God and for God's uh, glory. He says at the end of verse 11, he says, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. In other words, there's no way that we can solve the questions of creation or providence or God's plan uh, for the end of the age or eternity apart from his revelation, his word. Every, all of that would be a completely, complete mystery to us. The world, as the Bible teaches us and teaches us correctly, that it is headed toward its God-appointed end. It is not out of control. God did not wind up the universe, as so many people believe, and then walk away from it, and he comes back and checks on it every so often to see how we're doing or where in the world that it's going to go. No, he's very active in human history, and this is all coming to his uh, God-appointed end. But if we didn't have, we don't have God in our life, then we're unable to uh, recognize uh, any of that. What happens in eternity? What happens when we die? What's the meaning and the purpose of life? Then in verse uh, verse 12, Solomon declares what he does know. He says, "I know that nothing is better for them 
than to rejoice and to do good in their life, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. This is a gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing shall be added to it, nothing taken away from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which has already been and what uh, is to be has already been, and God requires an account of what is past. And the idea that since God is the author of all that's good and uh, that is around us, despite all of the consequences of the fall that rest upon the world, the world has still got much that speaks of his creation and of his involvement, of course, that we should enjoy them and receive the blessings of the world. Uh, the, you know, not, nothing like a picnic or you know, lying down and watching the clouds go by or probably best of all, enjoying a good game of kickball with a college and career age group. All of these things are not expensive, uh, but to just sit down and take a look at, you know, there's so much to enjoy and receive as a gift uh, from God. And, and he declares in verses 14 and 15 that ultimately God does win over both time and eternity so the idea is don't waste your time fighting against his plan. It's just better to respect him. He does exist and submit to his control over our lives because he's the only one that knows uh, what it is that he's doing. Then in verse 16, uh, he picks up his search uh, under the sun, trying to find meaning in life and declares that he can find no answer for why the world is marked by sin and crime and iniquity. So he says, all right, I'm not going to take God into account. I'm not going to take the first three books, uh, first three chapters of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. I'm going to discount that, and I'm going to try and figure out uh, why human beings treat one another the way that they do. Translation, why is the world marked by sin and crime and iniquity? To me, there's no greater explanation for the condition of the world all around us that we see every day than the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, that we were created in the image of God, that we have fallen uh, from that high place that we've been created for, and bear the consequences of that fall in our every area of our life, including our relationship uh, with one another. So he asks the question there in verses 16 and 17, why is man the way that he is? Why is he so sinful and wicked? Why is it that when God is left out of people's thinking that wickedness then prevails over justice and over righteousness? And it's because when the realization that one day you remove this realization from a, the population of a nation or this realization from the world as a whole, that there is a God and that one day we will stand before him and we will give an account for the life that uh, we are living, then you have removed a considerable restraint off of people's lives related to crime, related to iniquity, related to uh, in, in, uh, injustice. And so uh, 
the folly of doing that kind of thing. And so he says in verse 17, he secretly hopes that ultimately uh, the righteous and the wicked will be judged by God after this life. So imagine he's looking at life. He says all the crime, all the victims, all of the one people making a victim of this person and this, and abusing this person and all. And even though he's trying to say, okay, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God. Not, I can't think about God. I can't think about God. It's like, God, please make them pay someday for what they're doing. I mean, you just can't escape God related to uh, all of it. So the idea is if there is a God, then uh, uh, this is what uh, he should be like. And he's thinking, God, then if if God does exist, then he should end up judging uh, this kind of activity and this kind of, of crime and this kind of sin. And so again, he just keeps coming back uh, to God over and over uh, and over again, and he's coming up. He's coming up with his own idea. He looks at the world around him and he's trying to construct a God. That what would a righteous God do in the light of what people, uh, the l- way people's lives are living? And he concludes, God should judge them. And so uh, he's he's fashioning this uh, this God. And we need uh, we need God and um, the. Uh, in order to put that kind of restraint in our life. He laments that uh, as he goes on in uh, verse 18 here, he laments the fact that so much of mankind lives like animals. He said, I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have that one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. So he's saying, okay, there isn't a God. Man wasn't created in the image of God. We're all just animals. We just happen to be a higher form of animal, and we die just like animals die. And uh, we already see it, don't we, with um, up in Oregon or wherever you can put your grandmother to sleep or the way you put your dog to sleep or whatever. Got to get her permission. But, uh, we, but that comes out of this whole thing, that man is really, he's just a high form of, of, uh, of, uh, of animal and his days are not numbered by God. And so we can intrude into that area of life. He says, all go to one place, all are from the dust, all return to the dust. It's just we're nothing, no different than they bury the coyote or the uh, squirrel that got hit and is lying by the side of the road. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth. So I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage for who can bring him to see what will happen after him. And so he laments the fact that mankind lives like, uh, so much of mankind lives like animals. But of course, uh, what in the world do you expect? If you remove God from people's consciousness 
and the fact, again, that we will one day give an account to God, which he talks about uh, there in terms of uh, verse 21, then uh, mankind will live like an animal and he will die like an animal. Of course, we see all of this all around us uh, today where as we've removed any kind of favorable mention of God more and more in our culture Whenever God is spoken about in kind of media or entertainment, uh, um, if, he's, if he is, his existence is ridiculed or if he is, does exist and that's acknowledged and it's made fun of and, and all of this. And so uh, when you remove any favorable mention of God from schools, from entertainment, from the public square, then people have become more and more animal-like in their treatment of one another. And you see it. And you watch, you know, again, I think we talked about it a few sermons ago where everybody, you know, rolled their eyes at the Christians where they're going to going to remove prayer from Christian schools and then the Ten Commandments from here and from there. And, and this is and people are saying this is a terrible decision. And, and then people come back and say, listen, there isn't even prayer in church. Why do we care if there's prayer in, in schools and all of that? Well, you know, one, two wrongs don't make a right. And, but the idea isn't so much the issue of prayer. The idea is what's been removed is the consciousness of God, that he does exist, that he can be talked to, and he is alive. And look how, you know, before everybody would say, you remove this and I'll tell you it's going to be the end of the USA and all of this, and everybody just rolled their eyes and all. Well, look at what's happening. Look at how savage our population has become. Like animals. You go online and you look at the headlines and you just go, where in the world is the next beast going to rise and do whatever is in his or her heart? Look how brutal. Look at the knockout game that's going on in urban centers. Look at the shootings. Look at the, just the craziness. Look at how people treat one another. Look at the fights. Look at what it takes... Um, the entertainment that we're drawn to now because there's nothing within us from God that causes us to be repulsed by it. And so it appeals to us and watch, you know, two animals tear each other, you know, one another uh, to death. And all of these kind of thing, the savageness that's been introduced and all of it here related to removing God, trying to find life under the sun. And so you remove God from people's thoughts and people will become like animals. And you stop teaching them that they've been created in the image of God, that God's created us for something greater. And you start to tell them one generation after another, after another, after another, that they are just animals. And then as the old saying goes, it's a simple observation, but it's meaningful, is you tell one generation after another of kids that they're nothing more than an animal, and then you can't act surprised when they act like animals. And that's exactly what we're seeing, and it's progressively becoming worse and worse. And Solomon recognized the very, uh, the, the very thing here. And ultimately, he declares in um, uh, the, uh, verse 4, he said, then, I mean, chapter 4, verse 1, he said, I, then I returned and considered all the oppression that's under the sun and looked the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors, there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore, I praise the dead 
who are already dead, more than the living who are still alive. Yes, better than both is he who never existed, who never got born into this mess, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. And Solomon's conclusion is an interesting one, and it's very enlightening. The fact that you take God away from the world and the consciousness of people in this world, the God of the Bible, then people are going to become more and more savage and animal-like. And what you end up with is a world that nobody wants to live in. You know, the United States of America is blessed because of our Judeo-Christian ethic, because of the significance, influence of the Bible and Christian men and women upon our nation and its formation. And um, we are throwing away value that we don't even know how valuable it is. But just look at other parts of the world that have no Christian heritage. And Solomon's assessment is right. If you put yourself in their shoes in the Sudan, in the northern Sudan or different parts of the world like that, or parts of the world where people are starving to death and the food is brought in from other nations, plenty to feed the population, and yet it's stolen away by the warlords and then sold in order to get more ammunition to do their thing. And then a person looks around and says, you know, it'd be better to be dead than to be living the life we live here. In fact, it would be better yet to never have been born into this hellhole called earth. And do you realize that much of the world is in exactly that condition? It's being lived as if life can be found under the sun. And we are gradually in this nation throwing it away and throwing it away and throwing it away as if it can have any other ending than it's having anywhere else in the world. It's folly. It's nonsense. And Solomon saw all of it uh, 3,000 years ago. Now, in verse 4, he continues to speak about all of this and the futility of the hard work of a skillful man. I'll tell you, there's nothing new under the sun. It's all, it's all in our newspapers every single day. So he's trying to find meaning and purpose in life under the sun. And the conclusion that he comes to is if God's not in the middle of all of this, then even the hard work of a skillful man is futile. He said, again, I saw that for all... Uh, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and uh, grasping for the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. So the idea is this that you work hard, you become successful and prosperous as a result of working hard, but then 
without God guiding the thoughts of the people of the nation that you're in, instead of your neighbors respecting you and thinking, wow, I want to work just as hard and I want to work just as skillfully so that I can prosper just like they've done. Instead, under the sun, remove God from everyone's thinking. And their response is not that, he says. The response is envy. Hey, that's not fair. It's not fair that they make more money than I do, even if I'm unwilling to work hard and unwilling to learn a skill, to perform uh, my uh, work with skill. I deserve the same thing that they have. And, of course, as we notice is happening in our country uh, today, very, very prevalent, where people are now demanding not, only, not merely the equality of opportunity, but also they demand the equality of outcome. In other words, skill and hard work is supposed to mean nothing. It isn't to be in the equation. I'm to make as much, get as much, have as big a home, have as, as, as much of everything else that I want to have as the person who's working skillfully and working hard. And it's epidemic all around us today. And it's the entitlement mentality that unfortunately is being nurtured today that I'm just owed shelter, I'm owed food, I'm owed clothing because I'm alive and I don't necessarily have to work for it. Why? Why has that attitude exploded in the last few decades in the United States of America directly proportional to the receding of the influence of God and godliness within our culture and why, so why does this entitlement attitude prevail? It's because we've raised generations of people in our nation now under the sun, independent of God. And we've denied them exposure to God and to His Word, and so they've been f- failed to be influenced by God, including what He has to say about work. There was a day in our... Uh, nation, when you would hear people talk about something called the Protestant work ethic, and it was spoken of favorably. And the Protestant work ethic is very simply the idea that hard work, frugality towards oneself, and diligence were that was one of the ways that a person could express their Christian faith. And it was called the Protestant work ethic for the simple reason that it comes out of the Bible. It's taught in the Bible. And you look at all the passages that we saw in the book of Proverbs that commended hard work and uh, spoke uh, strongly against, you know, laziness in, in, in a person and, and just that book alone. But again, you cannot remove God and the Bible as an influence within the nation without also affecting the work habits and the attitudes that people have toward hard work. Now, we're speaking about people who are uh, amassing wealth on the basis of skill and hard work, not talking about people who are gaining it by virtue of gaming some system or uh, taking advantage of others. So it's amazing how Solomon saw in his own... Everything he saw about life under the sun 
we're seeing increasing in a greater measure within our own nation. Again, because we're removing influences that God brings upon a nation and His Word brings upon a nation that we have no idea are there until they're gone and have no idea how valuable they are. So what's the option, though, to being... uh, Solomon looks at it and he says, all right, well, if you work hard and you're skillful, then all that happens is your neighbors just envy you and they think you're not fair and all of this. And so what's the option? He says, is the option to become... uh, 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 Verse uh, 5 there, to become a sloth, trying to get through life with a minimum of effort. He says that's just... A self, uh, self-eating, that's just cannibalism. It's, in other words, he's saying it's self-destructive. A person that goes and says, all right, I'm not going to work hard. I'm not going to learn a skill. I'm just going to skate through life and do as little as I have to do to eke by and get through all of this. It's the death of that person. That person will never grow, not only spiritually. They will never grow emotionally the way that they should. They will never grow in terms of their character. They will never grow mentally. They will, they will dwarf themselves by virtue of taking this other path. It's the absolute death of, of self-respect. Uh, and so in verse 6, what he is essentially declaring there is we talk about the sweet smell of success. He said, listen, you remove God from a country and you can take that phrase with you as well because you'll enjoy the sweet smell of success, but you'll have to keep it to yourself because people will become your enemy as a result of it. There's the sweet smell of success uh, because of God and and you remove God and now it's not all it's cracked up to be. And so success, it does bring its own set of pressures into a human life. And so his counsel here is not God's counsel. His counsel is just try to find some place in between where you don't have so much that you get everybody's attention and you become like the poster child for prosperity or achievement, but get just enough that you can still have kind of a nice life, but don't do anything more than that. And that's the kind of country you end up with and the kind of work atmosphere that you end up with ultimately as you remove remove God. And of course, for us as Christians, and should be for everyone, I mean, the highest motivation that we have for work is not even to become prosperous or not even to become wealthy. It is because if that happens, great. But it is because God has given us the ability to work. He has given us a skill to work. And we do that as unto him and for his glory. So we reject the counsel that Solomon gives here, and that is, hey, Go under the radar. Don't do any more. Don't do any less. Just get through this life and get out of here in one piece. We reject all of that. We're to take fully the strength that God has given us, the position that He's put us in life, the skill that He's given us in that position, and to give our all to that for His glory uh, so that He can be uh, seen. Then Solomon, verse 7, he speaks of the vanity of overworking in order to become rich. And so here we have the folly of the workaholic. He said, then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. Uh, There is 
uh, one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother. Yet there's no end to his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. And so here's the folly of the workaholic who works and works and works and uh, work does translate into gain, and yet he never ever takes the time uh, to in, uh, enjoy uh, the fruit of his hard work. And so here's the guy that tells us in verse 8, essentially he's married to his work. He's so driven. He's not just a hard worker, but he's driven also by covetousness. That, uh, and so much so, he wants things, 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 more things, so much that he, things are more valuable to him than any relationships. And so he never marries. He doesn't have any children. He doesn't have any significant relationships in his life because he's given over to uh, all of this workaholic, workaholicism and, uh, in order to gain things. And so uh, Solomon says when he finally wakes up and he asks himself the question, why am I working so hard and depriving myself of good to accumulate all of this wealth and I don't even have anyone to will it to, he said usually that uh, happens uh, too late. And so here's a gentleman who uh, refuses to share his wealth not only with others, but um, he, he's a miser. Uh, he, he even is a miser toward himself. He won't spend it on himself. And uh, our English word miser uh, is the root word of the word miserable. And <laughs> it's because living as a miser is a miserable uh, way to live because you miss out on everything that's important in life. Uh, life is to be enjoyed, and it is to be enjoyed with other people. And uh, the miser... Uh, misses all of that. And so the Bible definitely commends hard work, absolutely does that, but uh, it can be taken so far that it becomes an imbalance in a person's life, and so moderation is important even concerning good things. Then in verse 9, in contrast to the loneliness of the workaholic, now Solomon shares the importance of uh, relationships and the importance of friendship and teamwork. He said two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. He gives four examples of where relationships and friendships are valuable in life. And the first one here is when you're trying to do hard work. Um, sometimes when you're doing a hard physical labor and you have someone else who is as skilled as you are in that particular field, or maybe they're just a gopher. They're just a strong back, and they can take orders. Well, if you're able to then get three, four, five times more done than you would just by yourself. And so the two, it multiplies out. Um, if I, I've never done um, any real electrical, but I've watched people do it. And you, do, you watch an electrician who is trying to pull wires all by himself as opposed to uh, pulling wires with someone who's feeding the wires in and knows what they're thinking before they even think it at all, they're able to do much more than a single person ever would. If you've ever built a deck alone, you realize how nice it was when the neighbor came and said, maybe I could 
hold something in place for you while you nail that in place or screw that in place. And so there are those situations in life, physical labor being one where relationships are uh, very important. He says for, uh, in verse 10, For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. And so here we live, we're within driving distance, aren't we, of uh, Yosemite and people sometimes falling over this and over that. And, um, or just then, then you go from falling at Yosemite to um, falling, walking up the two steps to your front door. So, the, But when you, a person falls and they're in a remote area or something, wow, are they in trouble. But if they've got a friend with them, the friend can help them up, dust them off, get on their way. And it's not just talking about physical falls. There can be those uh, times in life where um, things are very difficult emotionally or mentally upon us or we're in a great trial or great spiritual warfare. And there are those seasons in life where um, that season is demanding more of us than uh, we need somebody else's help. We need somebody else's perspective and not just their physical strength, but their spiritual strength to come alongside ours as well. And that's why Paul wrote to the Galatians and he said, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We all have certain things in life that we can only bear on our own. No one else can help us with that. That's between us and God. But then there's a whole world of things that we need other friends and Christians and relationships in our life to help us get through uh, those seasons. He then moves on in verse 11 to talk about the, uh, how, what a blessing a friend or a companion is uh, just in terms of generating heat on a cold night. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And so this was written way before there was central heat in the house. What? They didn't have central heat in Israel 3,000 years ago? No, they didn't have central heat in Israel. They didn't even have heating blankets. What? No heating blankets? So it gets cold. Just like Cal Israel's a lot like California, weather-wise, Northern California. And uh, it, it gets cold in the winter. And so back in those days, if you were traveling, you know, from one city to the next and you're going into with, you know, with a friend and and you get to this lean-to or whatever or a, a stable or something for uh, animals or whatever, and now you're making your way, this is a cheap place to stay, and you would just huddle next to one another because one another's body heat would uh, help you to keep uh, keep warm. And so, and, and it didn't, wasn't just speaking about husbands and wives who uh, required this on, on cold nights, but travelers, again, who would sleep close to one another so as to not freeze. We think about David, don't we, with Abishag when he was late in his life. He got real skinny and, you know, uh, skin and bones, and he couldn't generate enough heat to stay warm. They couldn't pile enough blankets on him, and so they put the search out for a beautiful maiden in the uh, land of Israel to come and lie next to him at night to keep him warm. And so they found this beautiful woman named Abishag. Listen, if you're going to get an electric blanket, get a nice one, right? So, um, 
So that's what, that's what they did. And she never became a queen. He never knew her sexually. Her purpose was just youth produces a lot of warmth. And, and uh, she did that. And uh, so it's the same principle here. She was a, a living uh, electric blanket. And then he goes on to talk about the, uh, the importance of friendships. Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So if you're attacked on the road, two people are, best, are, are better able to fight off an attack, which was common on the roads. You know, again, uh, that kind of crime has gone on always in human history. And two of you could fight uh, someone off much better uh, than one. There's that mention, beautiful mention of the threefold cord at the end of, of the verse there in verse, uh, verse uh, 12. And of course, it, it, you have uh, the fact that it's not easily broken. So if one companion is a source of strength, and they are in each of these four examples, then how much more having two companions that can meet that need in your life or three companions. In other words, have lots of friends, have lots of companions, have lots of uh, friend, uh, uh, fellowship in life for these kind of things that we uh, hit in life. And so it's the equivalent of our saying, you know, there's strength in numbers. In the ancient world, the strongest in general, the strongest uh, rope that was produced was the three uh, was the three twines that made up uh, made up uh, up the rope, and so twisted together, they're far stronger than any three on their own or independent of one another. And of course, this is used very often in weddings. This particular verse, the threefold cord is not easily broken, and how when Christ is added to any relationship, but in a wedding spoken specifically of husband and wife, then how much stronger that uh, marriage is. But it's true not only of marriage, it's true of any relationship that we have in life. You know, God has created us to be social creatures. We really, uh, we were created for fellowship with God. God created Adam and said almost immediately, it's not good for man to be alone, create a companion for him. So we're made for companionship. We're made for uh, relationship. And it's so important for each of us as Christians to have close, meaningful, spiritual relationships with one another, especially other Christians. And uh, Pastor David taught on it a, a week ago, uh, last Sunday morning. And uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. And so get a friend, get two, get three, get four, get as many friends as you can. Because what happens in life ultimately is a bomb does go off. Something does happen in life that is bigger than you and <clears throat> bigger than your resources. And it's not bigger than God, but God wants to use other people in our lives to help us through that particular season. And it's important to have uh, those kind of friends, someone that at the drop of a hat we can call and immediately enter into very deep, meaningful prayer. The relationship is current. The relationship is deep. Of course, in the United States, one of the things that is, um, you know, so true about us is we have this 
independent, can-do spirit and that we can do anything, I can do anything. It's a very individualistic culture that the United States has. We carry it over into the church and we carry it over into our uh, relationships within the church, not realizing that God never intends his body to operate that way. He is always working to intertwine our lives with one another. And I do want to say that the Christianity that Americans have been able to get away with because of the Christian heritage that we have, to be as independent as we are, as independent even from other Christians, that season is closing, and it is closing fast. We are going to need one another. We're going to need Christian fellowship. We're going to need personal, deep personal relationship with other Christians in a way that we never have before. The world has changed, and it's, ha- and it's changing by the day these days. And we're, going to, we're facing a world that our forefathers have never faced in this country, and we're going to need each other. Some of you know that if you come to me and want to talk with me about a situation in your life and, and you begin to describe a situation in your life where it's just like, um, you know, your whole world is just blown up. And it's just like a bomb has gone off right in your living room with you in it. And you're disoriented and you don't know what to do. And I've never been here. And I don't even know where the exit is out of this room. There's a lot of things that I might say to a person in that situation. But almost invariably, I'll say the same thing to them. At the end of talking things through, I'll say, do you have any Christian friends that you know are prayers and will pray for you and will look after you while you're in this season? And sometimes a person will say, yes, I have many, and that's just fabulous because they're prepared for that kind of season. And then the saddest situation of all is when that happens and a person doesn't have a single meaningful relationship in their life to turn to, to talk to them, a person about. It doesn't mean that you won't get through the trial, because you will. God will just bring people into your life. He'll bring grace of another sort into your life. But things will be are much easier when something hits and I know I can pick up the phone and call any one of two, four, six people and start to talk to them about what's going on right now and they're current enough with me to track with me and then to pray for me. So the importance of relationships and Uh, and friendships, and he brings uh, uh, that out. And it's very important and a wonderful truth for our lives. We'll stop there tonight and we'll pick things up in verse 13 next week, Lord willing. And as he heads into the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But I'm, I'm not racing through this. I would say... I'm not racing through this. I could, but I'm not. But that would be lying to you. And you would know that. Um, 
But I could be just highlighting this and say, well, he looked here and he looked here and he looked here and he looked here. And then, listen, he couldn't find it in any of those places, but he found it in God in the end and out we go. Except for the fact that our country is so disoriented right now and people are looking for meaning and purpose in all of these things all around us every day. And we can find ourselves trying to look in those same places. And this, pat, this book of Ecclesiastes just exposes the folly of looking anywhere else but to God uh, for what we need in our life and the resources that God has appointed for our life. So going through it a little bit more slowly, it stops and it helps us to learn the lessons that Solomon is teaching us here but also to make us realize, no, I'm not crazy. No, what's happening in the United States of America today isn't happening for the first time in human history. It is what much of the rest of the world is like every single day that the sun rises. And it's been much like what the world has been throughout history. But to be able to look at as a Christian process life that's changing so quickly before our eyes and to know at the core what the reasons are. They are not political. They are not about money. They are not about the Supreme Court. They are not about um, the uh, Fed. They are about God. And we are facing the problems that we are facing because we have systemically set up a nation now that is trying to eradicate the mention of God or any exposure to God in our country of youth all the way on up. And these are the consequences. And it helps us to recognize where we are and the progression of what's happening in the country that we live in so that we then might be able to speak authoritatively and imparting hope to people who are being overwhelmed by the same things that would have overwhelmed Solomon if he did not know in the back of his mind. He's a PK, not a preacher's kid. He's a psalmist kid. He knows the answer in the back of his mind so he doesn't flip out. People that we're dealing with every day now, they're flipping out related to where things are going. And for us to be able to speak and say, yes, here's the cause of it, but here's the solution for it for you individually, and then how you can be a part of the solution in the big picture. Well, um, let's ask the worship team to come forward. If they're here um, tonight. And... <laughs>